Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer, John Williams, one film at a time. Starting with his debut as a film composer in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode is about the music of None But the Brave, made in 1965. Now here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode. We are now at 1965 in the timeline of John Williams' career as film composer. And war is on his mind with two war films to score that year. One is a look back at World War II directed by one of the most popular singers of the era while the other is a comedy set during the start of the Cold War. Neither were regarded as hits at the time, but we got two very distinctive John Williams scores from them, and we'll discuss the dramatic score in this episode. None But the Brave was going to be John Williams' most ambitious project up to that point, both in scope and size. It contains the most music he had ever written for a film, almost an hour's worth and it gave him the ability to use the full orchestra throughout the film instead of for about five minutes. His director was Frank Sinatra, who was making his first foray into directing movies. In 1965, Sinatra was in his second comeback as an artist. In the early 1950s, his singing career was stalling, and he reinvented himself as a serious actor, winning the Oscar for Supporting Actor in 1954's From Here to Eternity. He continued acting throughout the 1950s, then returned to singing, and thrived as a jazz crooner with songs like Come Fly With Me in 1958. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Sinatra stayed with acting into the 1960s, producing many films in which he starred, including Ocean's Eleven. For his first and only directing job, he set his eyes on a script collaboration by an American and Japanese screenwriter. With the wounds of World War II now about two decades past, The time was ripe for Hollywood to show it could heal by teaming up with Japan's Toho Productions for None But the Brave. I'm not sure how John Williams came to be involved with writing the score to this movie. I like to think that Frank Sinatra, who also produced the film, called John Williams to hire him. That would have been a really fun call to receive, don't you think? At this point, Williams had written some good music to mostly low-quality films, and the film he had worked on before None But the Brave, called The Killers, was the first quality film in which John Williams was involved, but still not one that would have garnered much attention. But John Williams was one of the busiest, if not most popular, composers at the time, and his output in the 1960s had kernels of quality that surely attracted Sinatra to bring Williams on as composer. Oddly enough, Williams did not conduct the score. The job was given to Morris Stoloff, who was the musical director for Sinatra's reprise records at the time. So, even though Williams was an accomplished conductor of his own music at the time, the triple Oscar winner Stoloff was already contracted to handle the job as conductor. Surprised that Stoloff wasn't given the job of writing the music. 
John Williams had a nice break from writing film scores in the year between The Killers and None But the Brave. He continued his work on the hit TV show Gilligan's Island at the time and got an assignment to write the opening theme music to another show that would become just as popular as Gilligan's Island. It was called Lost in Space and would feature a very jazz-influenced theme, an odd choice indeed for a show set in space. But this decision would come back to John Williams about 10 years later when he would buck convention and use a traditional symphonic sound for Star Wars. Here's a listen to the opening music from Lost in Space. The creator of Lost in Space was Irwin Allen. After creating some popular science fiction shows for television in the 1960s, Allen created the disaster film genre in the 1970s with The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. Remembering his association with Williams during Lost in Space, Allen would wisely hire Williams to write the scores for those films. Let's get back to None But the Brave. The film would mark the first time a Hollywood production company and a Japanese production company would share costs on making a film. And the result is, well, just okay. The film shows why this was the only time Frank Sinatra would direct a movie. He makes very bad casting choices, even stooping to nepotism by hiring his son-in-law, Tommy Sands, as Lieutenant Blair. While most of the actors in the film are guilty of overacting, Sands is doing the best over-the-top acting at times, making his Lieutenant Blair cartoonish and buffoonish. Here's a clip of how bad Sands is in this movie in a scene with the more restrained Clint Walker as Captain Burke. Sir, fall out and turn to you at the command. You got any more policy, you sir? You to fight with your brains instead of your feelings. I want to whip the enemy as much as you do, not because he's Japanese, but because he is the enemy. Now that's policy, Lieutenant. And one thing more. Combat, you live a lot longer not being saluted or wearing your insignia of rank. The enemy likes to kill off the officers and the non-coms first. Breaks up the chain of command. Thank you, sir. Very bad acting indeed. Tatsuya Mihashi played the leader of the Japanese army. He was a very popular actor in Japan, starring in some very well-received films over there. In the United States, he wasn't a well-known actor when None But the Brave hit theaters in February 1965, but he would become a cult favorite the following year when Woody Allen turned the Japanese film Key of Keys, in which Mihashi played a James Bondian spy, into the English-language comedy What's Up, Tiger Lily. The Japanese characters in None But the Brave speak Japanese throughout, with the exception of Mihashi's character, Lieutenant Kuroki, who narrates his journal entries in English and speaks English to the American soldiers. 
Another bad choice Sinatra makes with this movie is not subtitling the dialogue of the Japanese characters. Even though the film heavily favors the American side, it doesn't help us empathize with the Japanese enough when we don't know what they're saying. But you are able to piece things together anyway. Before I go on, I will tell you there are spoilers ahead. The film opens on an uncharted island in the Pacific Ocean during World War II. No date is given, but it's most likely near the end of the war as one of the American soldiers talks of fighting in the Battle of Guadalcanal, which happened in 1944, a year before Nagasaki and Hiroshima were bombed by the Americans. A Japanese battalion is stranded on the island and soon are joined by a troop of American Marines whose plane is shot down during a firefight. The two sides fight each other a couple of times, particularly over control of a boat the Japanese are building. When the boat explodes in the fight, both sides agree on a truce. The truce comes after the American medic, played by Sinatra, amputates a Japanese soldier's leg. The truce doesn't last long, though. Once the Americans fix their radio and make contact with the nearby Navy ship, the Japanese try to kill the Americans before they can escape. The Japanese army is taken out, as well as many of the Americans. John Williams does quite well in creating some bold music for the film. The thematic, thematic elements he writes aren't as memorable as the ones he wrote for previous films, but I find that the score stands out for its use of varied instrumentation and for the brief Japanese flavor in the score. Williams had help with that. The film credits Kenjiro Hiroshi, a composer and songwriter working in Hollywood, as the Japanese music advisor. That most likely meant giving John Williams some direction in composing music for a Japanese flashback sequence and other sequences throughout the film. About 40 years later, Williams would return to writing Japanese music in Memoirs of a Geisha, and he wouldn't need much help in creating that score. The opening titles gives us the main theme of the film that's weaved throughout. It's bold and passed around from the brass section to the strings. For the first half of the film, the Japanese army is scored mostly with snare drum and timpani, as shown here. There's no music for any scenes featuring the Americans until about 22 minutes into the film. The U.S. Army finds out they are not alone on the island, but decide to let the Japanese find them. The Marines set a trap at the site where the plane crashed, falsely assuming the entire Japanese platoon will attack the U.S. troops. 
John Williams returns to the, to the percussion section as the Japanese sneak up on the plane wreckage. One Japanese soldier takes a grenade and prepares to throw it into the plane. The orchestra is no longer quiet after the grenade explodes. The Japanese soldier returns to the group and the Japanese troop advances on the plane. Now, Williams puts in vibrating strings and brass until the two American soldiers on the beach open fire. Turns out Kuroki was not happy about his second-in-command ambushing the U.S. plane and lashes out about it. When Kuroki pulls out his sword and holds it to his commanding officer's neck, John Williams gives us a nice stinger to accompany it. A stinger is a very short musical moment lasting just a second or so that is meant to provide extra shock value to something happening on screen. This is done all the time in horror movies or action movies. Sometimes it makes the audience jump in their seats because the action on screen is unexpected, and the music highlights that. So we'll start this cue with that stinger and continue to the next day when the American troops are hanging out in the hills on the island while their scout analyzes the terrain. One of the first lengthy action music cues comes just a few minutes later when the Americans spot a Navy ship approaching the island. The ship has come to check on the troops who are overdue for arrival back to their base.
The Japanese troops planned to sabotage the rescue by hanging a Japanese flag on a tree, thereby tricking the Navy ship to, into believing that the island is only inhabited by Japanese. Williams uses punctuated brass notes to build the tension as the Japanese soldiers on the island wait to ambush the Americans walking onto the beach to signal the Navy ship. It's an incredible use of the brass section. Get in there and light those pots on the roof. The Navy ship sees the Japanese flag hanging on the tree and blasts the beach with cannon fire. Lots of high violin shrieks help intensify the shock value of the attack. They can't see the color of your eyes, but they can see that. The Navy ship starts to turn away, thinking there are no Americans on the island. The music turns sorrowful as the American troops look on helpless. The most valuable thing the Japanese control on the island is a freshwater pond. The Americans sneak up on it, and Captain Burke suggests holding back to plan a strategy to secure the pond for themselves. But a few soldiers are apparently too thirsty to listen to their captain and decide to take a drink from the pond not knowing a Japanese sniper is waiting in the trees. Even though he was classically trained as a pianist, John Williams has always had a great talent at writing music for brass instruments. And you're going to find out why when you listen to this next piece. It's so great finding musical gems like these in these early works by John Williams. It's like that mambo scene with the dog in Bachelor Flat or the piano music at the end of Daddy-O. It's just so exciting to hear the moments of genius that John Williams had, even as a young composer, that he would use to great effect when he became popular and so recognized around the world. Another valuable Japanese asset is the makeshift boat they have been building. After a reconnaissance mission to analyze it, the Americans decide to take it for themselves as a means of escape from the island. Three Americans hide in the boat and set up to release it from the dock. A battle breaks out between the Japanese and the Americans, and when the boat is released, Lieutenant Kuroki makes a desperate move to keep the Americans from claiming the boat. He throws a grenade at the boat. The punctuated brass notes are back to help elevate the tension, followed by a cymbal crash, when the grenade explodes on the boat. Mm -hmm. 
The Japanese and Americans look at the wreckage from shore and everyone realizes any chance of contact with the outside world has been lost. The dream of hope is ashes, Kuroki says. Sorrowful music closed out the scene, and the trumpet at the end certainly makes you feel like all hope is lost. I love how the trumpet can be a triumphant musical instrument and a defeated instrument in a span of a few musical bars, and John Williams writes music for the trumpet that highlights this so well in this score and so many others that will follow. This was a big piece of music for John Williams, working to underscore a tense battle, a shocking explosion, and emotional heartbreak in a span of a couple of minutes. The music works so well with the visuals, though the sound of gunfire often drowns out the score. When the scene ends, we get 20 minutes of music-free movie as Frank Sinatra's character is called on to amputate the leg of the soldier who threw the grenade into the wrecked American plane earlier in the film. When the surgery turns out to be successful, the two sides negotiate a truce. After the strings play under the decoration of a truce, the music turns a bit Mickey Mousey as we see signs demarcating the border between the U.S. camp and the Japanese camp. You'll hear the music switch to a Japanese flavor when the Japanese sign forbidding American entry is on screen. Then the comedy returns as we see Fisherman Okundo and American Marine Craddock trade fish for cigarettes. After a scene in which the two armies build a dam to protect the freshwater pond from a monsoon flood, we get backstories about the two leaders. First up is Kuroki and the memory of the wife he left behind in Japan. This is the scene in which John Williams had to really focus on creating music with a distinct Japanese flair, and he really succeeds. ¶¶ 
Lieutenant Kuroki has discovered that the Americans have fixed their radio and is discovered hiding in the bushes. Captain Burke doesn't know it's Lieutenant Kuroki and hunts down the person who he thinks is going to relay the information to the Japanese camp. He sees the Japanese fisherman Okundo in the water and prepares to shoot him on the belief that he is the spy. Before he pulls the trigger, Burke notices a shark in the water and tries to kill it. Unfortunately, the shark kills Okundo. While watching this scene, the first notion that came to my head was music from Jaws, which wouldn't be written for another 10 years. I saw the approaching shark, and every inclination in my body was to go, da-dum, da-dum. That's how powerful John Williams' music is. The music used in the shark attack scene works just fine, though no other music written for shark scenes in any movie after the debut of Jaws will ever be the same. So, with radio contact reestablished, the truce is coming to an end, and before the Americans head to the beach to greet the incoming Navy ship, the two factions say one final goodbye and agree to fight if warranted. Kuroki salutes the American soldiers before taking his troops into the hills. I love the choice to make it a bit sorrowful in the music, marking the end of a short but meaningful friendship instead of writing music that hints at the return of war mentality to the island. The orders from the Navy ship are to kill the Japanese on the island at the initial refusal of the Americans. But orders are orders, and the Americans find themselves in one final shootout. According to the Japanese, if they can't be saved, no one can be saved. The result of the shootout leaves the entire Japanese army dead and a few more Americans as well. What John Williams does on the shot of the dead Japanese on the beach is a stroke of genius. He uses a trumpet to mourn the dead.
return to conventional score as the Americans get ready to leave the island, but not before we get a look at the Americans who lost their lives. Wisely, Williams uses the same trumpet to mourn the American soldiers killed in action. The strings rise up in the final minutes of the film as we continue to think about the lives lost in the course of the film and as one final tribute to Lieutenant Kuroki and his fight to keep the island. The film ends with his narration and then Sinatra, the director, puts up one final thought on the screen. Nobody ever wins. end credits. song was written from William's theme called None But the Brave. Here's a bit of it and you'll hear that main theme in the melody of the lyrics. Stand, though he be standing on. 
This film had to give John Williams lots of confidence in his scoring abilities. It's unfortunate that the film wasn't well received. If it had, the score would have been hard to ignore and Williams would have been on his way to the top of the pyramid in Hollywood. It did not stand a chance for a nomination for an Academy Award for Best Original Score, though. That was the year of Maurice Jarre's Dr. Zhivago, as well as Jerry Goldsmith's A Patch of Blue and Michelle Legrand's The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. But don't worry, John Williams will eclipse them all when it comes to Oscar nominations in a short time. I think that'll do it for this episode of The Baton. I really enjoyed diving into this score, and I hope you did as well. Join me next time for a listen to the score for another war film called John Goldfarb, Please Come Home. It's all part of our continuing journey through the fascinating career of the film composer John Williams. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, the baton is down. <laughs>